Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. Gerard, this is Kara. Did you miss me last week? I missed you last week. Uh, We had another blonde uh, in your position, and it was a little different, but she was equally good, but definitely glad to have you back. Oh, she's amazing. She's amazing. But I missed you guys. I didn't know what to do with myself during the time of the podcast, except, you know, like relax on a beach. (laughs) actually where I was, it was about 65 degrees on the beach. Um, but you know, beautiful nonetheless. And, um, and back here now to reality, a lot of reality (laughs) happening this week, Gerard, we've got, um, we've got a democratic ticket Mm -hmm. for the white house. Uh, Kamala Harris will be, it was Biden's pick for VP and boy, does, is she's going to be a lot of firsts, um, in terms of uh, a presidential ticket. Um, and man, oh man, so much to talk about in the news with regard to school reopening. And it just, it's, it feels, Gerard, like um, we'll be talking about this forever. Do you think we will? Well, forever, hopefully, it's a small F because oh. I would like to get back to some normalcy. And I'll even take normalcy with a small N at this point. Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned about uh, Senator Harris and one first uh, some people have overlooked, she is a graduate of my alma mater, Howard University. That's right. Yes. And so having someone who is a graduate of one of our HBCUs uh, is equally important and just speaks to uh, a lot of historical meaning behind that as well. So congratulations to her and her family. I'm also from California. So uh, there's another connection there, but should be interesting times, particularly as it relates to what all this will mean for school opening. And if there's a, you know, an election that takes place, what will it mean for? <laughs> if, if there's an election that takes place, oh my gosh, don't frighten me anymore. Come on, Gerard. Stranger hey, <laughs> things have happened. Tell me about it. And I, you know, I, I love that you say um, you'll take a normalcy with a small N. I'm thinking I'll take normalcy even with masks. I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with that. Uh-huh. So, and, and, you know, so I've been heartened to see in the news a couple of stories now about what we can learn about what's happened over the summer from reopening. And um, I got to say, uh, you know, working mom, one of the first things we did when we got back from our long stint in beautiful Michigan was my uh, my youngest is in summer school right now. And so uh, okay. in reading some of the things that are coming out about what we can learn from summer school, I've got one here from Edutopia. I'm, I'm, I'm driving with it because I feel like I'm sort of having a little bit of this experience. But basically, this article from Edutopia, Gerard, it's great because it talks about the fact that more than 15 states authorized schools and districts to run summer school. And a lot of them have been doing that. That doesn't even capture the private schools that have been doing it. And um, so some of the things that we've learned just logistically in terms of school reopenings, I mean, everybody, all of this, all of the same fears um, apply, of course, for teachers going back to school, for parents sending their kids back to school, etc. But in many cases, we've learned how it actually can work. One of the things I love about this Edutopia article that is entitled What Summer Schools Learned About the Challenges of Reopening is that it really usefully breaks into sort of buckets the things that schools are thinking about. And the first is getting set up. So what does it actually mean to 
pull this off? What do parents want? Do they want hybrid learning? Do they want remote learning? I'm, I'm a little disheartened. I have to say that I know a lot of districts in my home state are still trying to figure out what that looks like. And we're just a couple weeks away here. Um, another is something that I don't think a lot of folks are thinking about. It's buses arriving at school transportation, man. I mean, we need to write, somebody's reading, written a book on it, but we need a few more to think about like just, just logistics without COVID are tough, but how you distance kids on buses, what that means for bus routes, what that means for the bus drivers who, you know, need to be comfortable taking the kind of risk they're being asked to take. And then finally, and this is the part that I find really, really fascinating is just like what exactly are the health and safety protocols that need to go on in the schools? And I'll just share really quickly my own experience. I, we've been very lucky, but, you know, I'm dropping my little one off every day and we are both masked and there's a tent outside and everybody there is masked and we are taking temperatures and, and answering 20 questions about what we've done in the past, you know, what basically amounts to 13 or 14 hours. But I think that it's important. It's an important um, point of connection. And I know that schools, that the folks in them are working tirelessly to make sure that kids are keeping their masks on. And I am here to tell you that, yes, they can. I did not think they would, but I have witnessed it. And also to minimize just the touch points in the building so that adults aren't entering the building. And this is like a huge shout out to the teachers and the administrators that are making this happen. They're, they're not even thinking it through, but they've been implementing this in summer school. It's it's arduous work. It's detail-oriented work. And, and a lot of them are making it happen. And what we've learned from some of the experiences around the country is that it can work. Now, with the caveat, I would say that if you're in a place where, as um, as health officials have been telling us, where, where infection rates are high, it might not be the right way to go. But if you're in a place where infection rates and community spread is relatively low, with precautions, this can happen. In fact, Detroit Public Schools uh, folks were very up in arm that they shouldn't be running summer school. And it turns out that they had very, I think it was three um, folks came back with positive COVID tests and they were all in different schools and it was contained. So it's, it's possible and it gives us hope. And I'm really happy to see some of this research coming out that allows parents and school administrators and others to start to make, um, or confirm hopefully the decisions that they've already made or, uh, you know, or help them make more informed decisions as we move forward into the fall. You bring up really good points about families and about transportation. Um, first of all, congratulations for you having an option for your family. Yeah, we're very lucky. Yeah, there are a ton who aren't. Uh, I'm with you on all the points you mentioned. Uh, it's, it's just really important to see some experiments because we are walking in, I can't even say uncharted water. I'm not even sure there's water. I think we're just walking on where we can find. And um, yeah, there's definitely lessons we can learn from this one. And in fact, as you were, I was listening to you talk about summer school and we talk about also summer loss and the number of children who are going to just find themselves behind in reading and math, uh, more so with some kids who are in certain socioeconomic levels than others. But we are in some very interesting times, and I'm glad that we have some leadership at the local level saying, let's try. And of course, as you mentioned, people listening to health um, health leadership at the local Absolutely. level. Absolutely. So yeah. That's actually somewhat similar to uh, my article of the week. And this is from Commonwealth Magazine, which Pioneer Institute and those in Massachusetts are very familiar with. Uh, this is from August 9th, 2020. Uh, Sharia Schoenberg. 
and the title, Parents Turning to Pandemic Pods and Micro Schools. And it's basically uh, talking about families in, uh, in Massachusetts who said, you know what, we're going to do something ourselves while we wait for school leadership to make decisions. We're going to come up with a co-op of other parents, uh, like-minded like us, and create either quote-unquote pandemic schools or micro schools. And the idea is for them to do it remote, remotely or in some cases in person or blended with a group of families. Uh, the goal is for them, if necessary, to chip in funds amongst themselves and to hire teachers and to work with, in some instances, the school district as a way of finding some support staff to help. This is unique in a couple of ways. The fact that families who otherwise would have had their children in the public school system have decided to create somewhat of a micro school in the interim. And number two, that Carrie McDonald, who was our host last week, is quoted in here. She's a big proponent of, of homeschool. She talked about it when we had her on here. Some of the families who are in, who've been involved in traditional public schools for years, uh, now find themselves thinking like homeschool parents. And so it's actually a very interesting hybrid of thought about how do we become entrepreneurial as parents, take control of our kids' education, maybe not go the homeschooling route, but meet somewhere in the middle. So I think it's an interesting uh, dynamic. Now, there are a couple of things that I want all families to keep in mind when they make this decision. Uh, number one, if you decide to partner in a unique way with your public school system, you've got to make sure you identify if you're going to have a teacher from the system, who's the teacher of record. Uh, sounds arcane, but that kind of stuff is really important for local and state accountability purposes, to know exactly who is going to work with your child or your children. Uh, school systems will figure out how to work that into the map, but the teacher of record, if you're connected with your public school system is important. Number two, and not much we can do about this as of yet, school boards uh, have already voted and have a budget in place. We, not we, but states and locales often make decisions, and they differ across the states, on when you take your student count. Uh, whether it's yeah. Tuesday and you take your count in the fall and the spring and you use that um, that number to determine funding for the next level. And so now state chiefs, uh, superintendents, school boards and others are going to have to figure out how to account how to count parents in micro schools uh, as part of the system. If they decide to totally homeschool, are they technically out? These are some interesting um, dynamics that we have to figure out. But I'm glad to see families thinking in an entrepreneurial way. I was in a conversation last night with uh, leadership from Falls City Church, Virginia. Uh, it's televised. In fact, it was uh, put together by the Char uh, Falls Church Republican Party. So if you go to their face uh, Facebook page, you can listen to it. But here's an interesting way with micro schools to find out how to get access to some of the public money. For example, teachers have access to, uh, or schools have access to Title II funding for professional development. Maybe here's an opportunity for a school system, school system to say, we're going to give you access to 25 of our teachers. We're going to use Title II funds to support their work as an experiment so that we as a system can learn what micro-schooling is like, because guess what? Maybe micro-schooling will find itself around for four semesters, not just one. Secondly, uh, take a look and see if your local school system has a foundation. Falls Church has a foundation. Uh, a number of state departments of ed 
uh, also have a foundation. And sometimes it's it's a five hundred one c three that's separate, or it's part of the umbrella of the um, of the entity. But here's where individuals and foundations can give money directly to a foundation, and the foundation leadership can use that money to support experiments. Maybe here's an example where philanthropists can give money to the foundation, and that money can actually go to parents to help offset some of the costs they're now going to have to assume through microschooling. Now, someone's going to say, listen, they made a decision. Uh, they shouldn't have access to money. Well, remember, homeschoolers and non-homeschoolers, we all pay taxes into the system. In many That's ways, right. through the public money. So here's an opportunity if you don't want to touch your own budget because it's set, I got it. Here's a way of using your foundation as a, as an incubator to give funds to families, hire a researcher as well, and to look at an experiment. So I like the concept. I'm not going to use the term pandem- pandemic um, uh, pods because you're leading with the negative, but I like the idea of micro school. Yeah. You know, Gerard, I, it's so important, these tactical observations and recommendations you make about like how you would fund these things and what it looks like and what school districts can do. And, you know, it seems like there are, there are two extremes to this conversation. And the one is, this is going to totally blow up education as we know it. And all parents are going to pot up and this is going to ha- not going to happen. I, right. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. But the other end of the conversation, which is also important, is, is the equity issue that those who have the resources will and those who don't have the resources aren't going to be able to do this. And then it's just going to widen gaps, et cetera. Really relevant conversation. But in thinking about and it's so important that you bring up districts and what districts can do and what um, what teachers can do, what this would look like in in a fully public setting instead of only considering, and I, and I think we need to consider it absolutely, what it would look like to do some sort of ESA model, whether it's federal incentives, state incentives, whatever. But, but how can this happen um, agnostic sort of, of governance model of, of structure? Because that's where we're going to really see change. And, you know, um, I, I have a few friends that are forming pods. And I think a lot of folks are going to do it while using the district curriculum. I think it is going to blow up attendance requirements, as you say. And it's probably long past due that we figure out a different way to think about that. But this is going to be really, really interesting to watch. I would point our listeners to a great blog written uh, by my friend Sam Dwell at Excel and Ed, who outlines the different ways in which we can think about districts, charters, and teachers sort of getting involved with sponsoring, being responsible for these pods. And I'm with you. We shouldn't call them pandemic pods. I think, as I said on on another uh, iteration of our show, that I also really, for whatever reason, I just don't like that darn term pod. But I think that this will fundamentally change the way parents think about um, their own ability to 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 make learning occur at home, to help their kids at home. So one day, we're going to be talking about this for weeks to come, my friend. I, I want some data, too. Who's going to collect the data? Are you going to collect the data? I want to know how many parents are potting up, Gerard. <laughs> well, for all the foundations who love to fund scholars, the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation in Charlottesville, where I am vice president of education, we have helped uh, place over 200 uh, young scholars in uh, universities across the country, 76% at R1, R2 schools. So if you want to hire some scholars or fund them, uh, look me up. <laughs> 
think we can help there you. There you go. Good stuff. Fantastic. Okay. And coming up, we're going to talk early childhood education, um, a, a, an area in which it's really hard to think about uh, remote learning, but maybe this is an, an area where pods will work. And we're going to be talking with our friend, Jack McCarthy of Apple Tree Institute. So we'll be back after this. And we are back with Jack McCarthy. He is president and CEO of Apple Tree Institute for Education Innovation and board chair of Apple Tree Early Learning Public Charter School. Founded in 1996, Apple Tree is a nonprofit enterprise consisting of a research institute, a charter management organization, and a network of exemplary charter preschools in Washington, D.C. Apple Tree works at the intersection of research, policy, and practice. Under Jack's leadership, Apple Tree has grown to a $30 million enterprise with 275 staff. In 2010, Apple Tree won a $5 million U.S. Department of Education Investing Innovation Development Grant for Every Child Ready, which is its comprehensive, evidence-based instructional model for three- and four-year-olds, and it's used by preschools throughout the District of Columbia. Today, Apple Tree educates a diverse enrollment of 1,300 children at 11 sites, many of them in Washington, D.C.'s most economically challenged neighborhoods. Jack is a graduate of the American University of Washington, D.C., and has a certificate in strategic management and governance of charter schools from the Kennedy School at Harvard University. Jack, welcome to The Learning Curve. We're really excited to talk to you today. How are you doing? Pretty well, thanks. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Well, you and I met many years ago now, I think, when I actually wrote a brief for Pioneer Institute on what you were doing with Apple Tree, and it has just grown leaps and bounds since, especially in terms of um, of your your the adoption of your curriculum by many different schools and in the number of schools that you've established and the children that you're serving in D.C. Um, so I'm so happy for, for your success because um, we know that it's a phenomenal model. But I want to start back like at the beginning for a minute. So you actually co-founded Apple Tree in 1996 um, and you had worked in politics, you're a businessman and you would actually help set up a charter school here in the Boston area. What was it that convinced you that it was time to get into early childhood education and, and to do it in Washington, D.C.? Well, there are a few things happened along the way. Um, and, and first, I just want to say, I find this work to be both fascinating and immensely fulfilling. Um, I was fortunate to be in the founding group of Boston Renaissance Charter School. I was invite, invited by a friend who asked for my help because at the time I was working in real estate. Um, I became fascinated by the charter bargain that allows groups of citizens to design, create, launch, and expand new models of schooling that work better than what we currently have. So I was responsible for finding a building and developing it for the school, and that's a whole other interesting story. But the first lottery is what burned in my memory. Of 600, only 650 of the 1,600 applicants uh, to that school won a spot, and most of those who weren't accepted um, on the night of the lottery began crying spontaneously. That was incredibly moving, and that was the moment that I decided if I ever had the chance to be involved with creating another charter school, I had to. So I co-founded Apple Tree Institute for Education Innovation as a vehicle for doing that. And our original mission was to increase the supply of effective schools through innovation. 
Uh, as you said, I had attended American University in Washington, D.C., and I worked for a member of Congress um, during and after college. So I was familiar with the city. And at the time we were doing that work in Boston, the charter school movement was growing in Washington, D.C., but it was still very small uh, at that time. I was invited as a result of the success we'd had in Boston to talk with some D.C. advocates to school choice and charter schools and to provide some worthwhile ideas to some of the congressional staffers who were writing the D.C. School Reform Act for Congressman Steve Gunderson of Wisconsin. Among the suggestions I made based on our experience with including a sibling preference, including a facility capitation to make it easier to provide school buildings uh, with funding and setting a 15 year charter term uh, for charter schools to develop, stabilize and demonstrate their value. All of those things made it into the law and they've made a big difference in the growth and quality of charter schooling. So we were actually involved in the early years incubating three charter schools with three dynamic founders from 1998 to 2002. We were involved with two high schools and one middle school. And it was through that experience where I was struck by how many kids were coming into those schools reading significantly below grade level. Um, that was around the same time the report of the National Reading Panel came out in 1999. And as a result of all of those things, that's where I got the idea that what would it be like if we could just go back to the very beginning to ensure that kids were entering school with um, the skills that they needed in order to thrive. So we've been working on that idea ever since then um, with, you know, with some success. Well, in, in fact, with, with a lot of success, <laughs> if you look at the data. And one of the things I love about your story, Jack, is that so many people talk about what would it be like if we just started at the beginning, went back to the beginning. We know that, you know, gaps in um, in what kids bring, to, it starts at the starting gate, right? We always say the achievement gap is happens before kids even arrive at the schoolhouse door if we're talking about kindergarten. But you have taken that on, head on. I'm. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about Apple Tree's early childhood focus, the, the curriculum, the educational philosophy that it's based on, and maybe some of the challenges um, that you've encountered along the way. Sure. I mean, the, as I mentioned, um, the report of the National Reading Panel came out. And that was really important because up until that time, I think we really underestimated what young children um, were capable of learning. And I think a lot of that is what results in what we call the achievement gap. Um, there was a study done, I think, in 1995. It was Hart and Risley's Meaningful Differences in the Everyday Experiences of American Children, in which they identified the 30 million word gap between advantaged and disadvantaged children by the age of three. And reading that, as I became more interested in early learning, that really got my attention. So. You know, we, as we started to focus on this, we, we um, wanted to figure out a way to um, support teachers in really um, building uh, evidence-based, comprehensive um, instruction into a way that uh, could be delivered effectively again and again and again, because early childhood is so under-resourced by and large, um, which one of the things that's great about Washington, D.C. is that it is robustly funded, so it, it, it is very different. 
But we wanted it based on evidence and based on the idea that you've got to build children's language and vocabulary and numeracy skills, as well as their background knowledge and the important social emotional skills that you need in order to thrive when you get to kindergarten and beyond. And we know that disadvantaged kids start from way behind because in a lot of cases, they're, um, they're just not exposed to the kind of language and vocabulary that more advantaged families have. Uh, Hart and Risley found that um, kids in a single parent households or maybe households where parents didn't have the same um, educational attainment as uh, more advantaged households heard more business language, you know, sort of do this, do that. Um, not the kind of really, um, you know, uh, vocabulary rich conversations that you find. So we set out to try to develop an approach where we could pack all of that um, background information and, and vocabulary and rich experience into something uh, that could be scalable for three and four-year-olds. And that's what Every Child Ready really is. It's what to teach, it's how to teach, and how to measure progress, all in a comprehensive, well-integrated instructional model for three and four-year-olds um, that's on a technology platform. So it makes it really easy for teachers who are maybe just be coming into the field. It levels the playing field between less experienced and more experienced teachers, because that's another big challenge in this field. There aren't a lot of uh, great three and four-year-old teachers right now, three teachers of three and four-year-old children. And that's something else that we've got to develop if we're really looking to take full advantage of these years for kids. Absolutely. Well, something that I was struck by when um, when working with you, when studying Apple Tree those many years ago, was number one the teacher, the robust teacher training model, and um, and the emphasis on on teachers and teacher quality, but also the idea that you actually can measure um, progress <laughs> in little kids without you know these. We everybody gets these terrible pictures in their head of little kids sitting down in paper and pencil tests when they're in preschool, which obviously isn't what happens what's happening. But we know when you guys have proven that really strong teachers are, are making assessments in their mind all of the time and that we can learn about uh, about what kind of outcomes teachers and schools are helping kids to achieve. Um, Jack, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about the current moment, because of course, you know, uh, we, um, Gerard and I have been talking for weeks and even earlier today about school reopening and et cetera, et cetera. And you all are in a really unique position because, um, it's really hard for preschoolers to do remote learning. Maybe you'll tell me differently, but as the mother of a preschooler, I certainly did not find it uh, easy when his school was doing everything they could to try and help him. Um, what's, what's happening in the fall and, and how have you all dealt with the COVID situation thus far? Carrie, you know, you're absolutely right. I think we all have to acknowledge that there is a tremendous loss of learning that's taking place. Um, and kids and families who can least afford it are experiencing the greatest loss. Mm -hmm. um, we're also learning that it's easier to shut schools down than it is to reopen them safely and effectively without ways to measure the risk of exposure to the virus. Um, so that said, um, the way that we've approached this is, um, you know, we closed our schools in March along with everybody else and then started bringing everything that we had from our research institute and the knowledge that we've developed over time to trying to find some meaningful, authentic ways 
of um, connecting with families in their homes, recognizing that people were all across the spectrum in terms of access to technology. Some mm -hmm. really just had telephones. Some people might have had computers and so forth. And, you know, what we were trying to do was just to make an authentic connection to the parent or the caregiver who was there and try to support as much as we could in, um, you know, continuing to pro provide the content that we had. But then we realized, you know, this is likely to continue for some time. And we were not at all uh, convinced that we would be going back to um, in-person education. And in fact, we're not um, in, uh, you know, in September. Uh, the, there's still, uh, the city still is, um, is, is going to continue with, uh, with virtual. So um, we thought, what are the things that we could do to really provide a value proposition to families? Again, recognizing we're not going to replicate um, what we do in person in terms of that kind of powerful teaching and learning. But um, what, what are the things that we could do to keep kids engaged and keep families engaged and keep learning? So we put together a partnership with um, Nickelodeon's uh, Nick Jr. Uh, mm. Noggin platform and yeah. the Sparkler uh, technology platform, which a lot of parents are familiar with if they have young kids. And uh, what is really neat about that is um, it is something that's fun and engaging, but it, it does have standards. It is uh, based on uh, good things. And we are working with them to bring some of our content into that. And this is a partnership that's gonna go beyond um, these, you know, this, this COVID crisis. It's something that's gonna be ongoing and, and worthwhile. Um, we've also purchased uh, Apple iPad minis uh, which we are getting to all of our families and we're getting hotspots so that they can um, get, and we're also providing subscriptions to Noggin um, for the time that they are at Apple Tree so that everyone will have access to this content. Everybody will have the ability to sign in. The other thing is we've really been spending a lot of time training our teachers um, to just talk about connecting with families. Uh, what we found through our listening tours in the spring uh, in many cases, some of the families, because we, we educate the, the most economically disadvantaged uh, children in Washington, D.C., um, in many cases. And what we were finding were families that were experiencing you know, not, not only the economic challenges, but like housing insecurity, food insecurity, as well as just, you know, being concerned about the public health crisis. And a lot of times our parents uh, found that really, um, just by listening to uh, you know moms and dads and, and and other family members about how their day was going made it easier for them to um, you know to to deal with the moment and so forth. So what we're doing is really just trying to connect authentically to establish these meaningful relationships so that we are a true value proposition in families as we conduct all these basically experiments trying to find meaningful ways to continue to get worthwhile content to our families using all of the innovative ways that we can in these different partnerships to try to um, you know minimize the learning loss that's going on but it's you know I've got to be honest with you this is what we're doing right now is is our very best effort to try to be innovative and creative but it's not the same as um, what our in-person 
experience teaching and learning uh, uh, hopefully will be when we, we can all get back to normal. Hey, Jack, this, this is uh, Gerard. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Gerard. How are you today? Doing well. When I was going through my book and some notes I had, you and I met in the late 1990s. I initially uh, found myself thrust into the politics of D.C. school reform when I worked. I was an intern then on the D.C. Reform Committee, which Tom Davis, uh, at that time, a Republican Congress member from Northern Virginia was the chair. It was through that that I met a guy named Kevin Chavis, who was on the city council. That led to me working for Arlene Ackerman uh, in the late 90s at a point when charter schools were really in the embryonic stages. And when people think of D.C. today, they know we have uh, a three-sector initiative. Charter schools uh, are a part of that. We know we're one of the top five charter school markets in the country. When people think of D.C., they think of charter schools. Well, you and I know it wasn't like that in the uh, mid to late 1990s. Talk to us about what it was like uh, in the early days of trying to get people in D.C. interested in something other than the traditional system. Uh, D.C. historically, uh, for a host of reasons, has been a tough place to get education reform through, partly because you've got... Uh, 435 members in Congress who all want to serve at times as superintendent of D.C. schools. And then you have grass, uh, roots and grass tops people trying to do the same thing. Talk to us what it was like when you first got started. Yeah, no, you're right, uh, Gerard. Uh, 24 years ago, uh, Congress played a much more active role in the city's affairs when uh, D.C. was in receivership under the control board and charter schools were a congressionally initiated reform, essentially basically imposed on the district. Um, in the early days of the charter movement, congressional oversight and monitoring really helped charters get traction uh, and prevented the district government from doing bad things to charters, um, you know, in, in ways that I think uh, could have if things were different. Um, over time, you know, and, and you mentioned Kevin. Uh, Kevin, who is, I, I consider a friend now, was chairman of the education committee at the time. And he was, I don't think he was really crazy about charters in the early days when we were testifying before him. Exactly. And to his credit, to his credit uh, he really came around, I think, when he saw um, how important it was to families he was representing. And uh, when he saw some of the um, ways that I think charter leaders were really trying to overcome some of the barriers to educating kids well that just weren't happening with DC public schools. Um, you know, the over time, we've seen this progression of the the district, um, you know, becoming more politically mature, frankly, in terms of home rule, uh, more effective in self government, and better financed through economic growth. And, uh, you know, that is posing other challenges to charters now. We're finding charters more subject to um, local regulation than is comfortable because the district council tends to really favor strong central planning, monitoring, and oversight versus delegating power to autonomous schools. So it's, it's never been easy. We've always had headwinds in D.C., um, but I think, you know, the, the thing that I think has um, allowed us 
to get to 50% of the enrollment has really just been the authentic benefit that parents experience in this very diverse set of educational approaches that you see in Washington, D.C. I mean, we have early childhood charters. Very hard to find those anywhere else in the country, yet they're top rated. We're doing really innovative things, creative things with, uh, with, with families. You have some of the large national networks like KIPP, um, which is really the largest LEA in the district, yet um, other really large LEAs like Friendship, which came out of a settlement house, which um, has always had a very strong um, connection to communities in their growth. Um, and lots of other different, uh, you know, bilingual schools, Montessori schools. It really is a very diverse um, set of providers in DC um, that have learned, I think, to find niches in neighborhoods and with uh, particular communities in the city um, that have allowed us to thrive. I've no illusions that the next few years are going to be really challenging because we've seen a lot of um, legislation, frankly, being developed by teachers unions that are not really um, supportive of charter schools coming through the council. And I hope that our overall value proposition will keep us in good stead. But the politics in D.C. have always been challenging. And I expect they always will be. You found a unique way of navigating some of the politics. And in fact, you've mentioned some of the, the pioneers in this area. I think of Donald Hintz uh, with uh, Friendship Academy and now Mache Ashton has got her, uh, her digital pioneers academy. You walked into this in part with some background in politics and business. Um, D.C. is a much more mature market, as you mentioned today. The politics uh, are a little different. If I were an up-and-coming person interested in starting a charter school in D.C., or frankly, anywhere across the country, based upon your years of experience, what three things would you say to, to him or her, whether it's D.C. in particular, or whether it's entering uh, the reform market in another city? Be extraordinarily humble. <laughs> and that, that is something, if you're not when you start, you certainly are when you've been involved as long as I have been. I think really being humble and really um, being willing to listen, because, you know, as Tip O'Neill said, all politics are local, and I think education politics are extraordinarily local, even though there's a strong national influence. Um, it really is important to sit and talk with people and find out what are the problems that we're really trying to solve because people are the ones who will enroll at your school, you know? So if you don't have an idea that, or an approach that is really valued uh, and seen as an important contribution to the community's needs, you're not gonna be successful. And the only way you can do that is really by listening. Um, I think that what's so interesting about you know, just talking about Washington, D.C., there's almost an inverted power structure there since um, home rule. Uh, and I mean that uh, there are very few people, including the mayor, who can just make something happen. And there are hundreds of people who can slow things down or prevent things from happening. So by by the very nature of it, you really have to spend a lot of time talking to people and building um, relationships. Uh, that are um, longstanding and authentic and really aimed at win-win. Uh, and, and, and that's what, something I think we've done. So many people 
helped us in our early years, I've always made it a point to sort of pay that forward and to try to help other people and just develop relationships. Try not to burn bridges because the person that you might be, um, you know, in opposition to tomorrow may be your partner going forward. We've partnered with developers of housing. We've partnered with other education innovators, um, with other LEAs. Um, you know, I, I just really think it's, it's how politics really should be, um, where things are not adversarial, where, you know, you're really looking at the greater good and really trying as, as much as you can to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. It's so funny. Much of what you just said about D.C. Uh, politics, I, in many ways, I wish you would see that at a higher level, but I will, I will leave that one alone. Jack, thank you so much for your commitment to families in Washington, D.C. Thank you for your commitment uh, as a mentor to a number of entrepreneurs in the city. Thank you for acknowledging the importance of being humble and relationship building in a place like D.C. Uh, where people come and go and where fewer than 20% of the population have uh, our school-aged children. Uh, it's a unique city, and you've made it better for a lot of people, including those who have no children or those who have children in, a, uh, in another sector or those who may homeschool. Uh, thanks for joining uh, uh, me and Kara on our behalf. Thank you. Keep up the good work and always know you have a, a platform to come and talk to us and the nation through this platform. I'm honored. Thanks so much. After that fantastic conversation with our friend Jack from Apple Tree, we are back and I have got the tweet of the week this week, Gerard. Actually, happens to be from somebody that I've worked with a little bit. I admire greatly, Miss Ellen Weaver um, out of South Carolina. She's tweeting uh, about her own piece in the Wall Street Journal this week. The CARES Act creates an opportunity for school choice, but South Carolina's public education lobby is attempting to block need-based scholarships. So basically, here we are, South Carolina. Governor McMaster has determined that he's going to use some of his gear funding to basically give ESAs to students who need a different alternative. It is um, needs-based, as Ellen points out. So it's focused on the kids that we are afraid are at the biggest risk of learning loss, etc. And and surprise, surprise, some folks in South Carolina do not like the idea of kids having the option to go somewhere other than their assigned district. And so now facing a lawsuit and injunction, meaning that um, the program, at least for the moment, has been halted and will not go ahead. We're going to be watching this one really closely. We are going to be supporting South Carolinian families in hoping that what is, I have to say, Gerard, I've seen it, a pretty darned high quality um, idea here. Um, and I think that we'll hope that the Supreme Court in South Carolina decides this one the right way in favor of kids and in favor of families. Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina is the uh, major proponent behind um, Opportunity Zones, um, created to give people in some of the most economically challenged zip codes in the country uh, an opportunity for people to invest, for them to create businesses to sustain. And we cheered because it was uh, public money using to advance a public cause to try to alleviate um, poverty, 
to increase entrepreneurship. And we cheered because it was public money helping poor people. The largest voucher program in the United States is the title, uh, is a Section 8 housing voucher program. That's uh, right. For a really long time, giving people public money to make private choices, sometimes moving outside of public housing into middle-class neighborhoods or into different settings to give the families and children access to, let's just say, a different culture. And culture is not just uh, phenotype or skin type. It has more to do with the uh, translation of ideas and, uh, and other things. When we think it's important in food deserts for people not to starve, we give them uh, food stamps or we give them an electronic, uh, well, digital card, ETB card, I believe. And we allow them to shop at for-profit grocery stores or community co-ops and we cheer. And yet, when we find an opportunity to use public money to advance a public cause for people who are often in the lowest rungs of public society, all of a sudden, giving uh, public money to poor people's ascent. <laughs> Mike dropped there. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's exactly right, my friend. I mean, I, I think we're done here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wait, wait, hold on a second. That was my mic. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, all to say, we just- are, you know, Ellen Weaver, if you're listening, loved it. And, uh, and we're behind you, South Carolina. So we're going to be, we're going to be watching. Absolutely. All right, Gerard. Next week, we are back with Julia Freeland Fisher. She's the director of education research at the Clayton Christensen Institute. And I bet you she's got a lot to say about innovation in these interesting times. So until then, Gerard, take care. Um, you know, your, your staycation's over, but I know, uh, I know the women in your life are often in nature. So enjoy your time and talk to you next week. Glad to have you back. Talk to you next week.